And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and this week we welcome international best-selling thriller writer Steve Berry back to the program today. A former attorney, Steve has over 25 million books in print in 40 languages. His first three novels were standalone thrillers, The Amber Room, The Romanov Prophecy, and The Third Secret. In 2006 began his tremendously successful Cotton Malone series with The Templar Legacy, with book number 16, The Kaiser's Web, coming last year. He even spun off the popular character Cassiopeia Vitt into several stories co-written with M.J. Rose. And there have been numerous short stories and contributions to anthologies over the years. The 17th Cotton Malone book is scheduled for February of 2023, but today we'll be discussing his first standalone novel since 2012 entitled The Omega Factor, which is published by Grand Central. Steve introduces us to new protagonist Nick Lee, who works for the United Nations helping to preserve the art and history of the world as an investigator in the field, and Sister Kelsey, who works as an art-restoring nun for a Catholic order. Hello. Afternoon. Is this just audio or video? It's just audio. Okay, go ahead. So how are you doing today, sir? Doing fine, doing fine. Are you still in Georgia or have y'all decamped for somewhere else? No, we live in Orlando now. Yeah, we've been here a couple of years now. Enjoying it down there, I presume? Oh, yeah, we love it here. It's wonderful. All right. It's been a few years since we've had John Book Talk here in Memphis. We used to just do in-person interviews before the pandemic, so. It's been a while. It's been a while. Glad to have you back on the show. How long is the show? 30 minutes? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to do 30. Okay. All right. I'm ready whenever you are. Okay. Let's get after it then. So, Steve, the book opens with a preface of a man on the run in the Pyrenees Mountains in 1428. Who is he running from and where is he running to? I don't want to give that away. That would give away the whole novel if I do that. I'd be careful about that. But he, uh, let's just say he's on the run uh, from the Moors uh, who had gone down to spy on. And he stumbles across a, a group of folks that ultimately changes the course of his life. So... Uh, I try to keep it a little bit vague so I don't give away much of the novel. Well, of course, but he enters into uh, some mountains and some woods, and the Moors suddenly break off the chase, and he's mystified as why they would do that. Very much so, because of these uh, this woman who's standing there, this nun who's standing there in the road, and she she's obviously not afraid of anything, and they're then obviously the Moors are kind of afraid of her, which uh, intrigues him, and so. That's how the novel kind of starts, but all that kind of comes full circle later on. Now, you say that it was unusual for her to be wearing a fleur-de-lis. Why would that be the case? Uh, well, I mean, it was just a, the at that point in time, the fleur-de-lis was not what it would be today. It would be a, a very uh, a rare thing to see, let's put it that way, in, the, in those days. And so that Florida Lee intrigues him and draws him in. And ultimately, we'll see why that's the case. Now, as chapter one of the book proper begins, we meet Nick Lee, and he works for UNESCO. What's his remit? Well, he's a, he's, he's a guy who came out of the military. Now, he's not special forces or anything like that. He just, he worked uh, in military security and, and he, he wants to go to work for the Magellan Billet and they don't hire him. So he, he ends up with the FBI and their uh, art recovery units. Uh, the FBI has, a, uh, has some interesting um, 
an interesting divisions there. There's three units around the country that deal with stolen art. Uh, from there, he gets hired by UNESCO and he goes to work for Clio, the cultural liaison uh, and investigative office, the muse of history, Clio. I kind of made it up. It's my, my, my little division I made up of UNESCO. And he goes around the world and he saves cultural treasures. I've had this guy in my head for about 10 years. And I finally got a chance to, with this book to bring him to life. Well, it's been a while since you've had a standalone novel. Why was now the right time for it? I changed publishers. Uh, I moved from Macmillan to Grand Central, and they wanted to start with a standalone, which is good because you get a little fresh thing, fresh look, fresh everything. Bad because you've got to write it from scratch, and even double bad here because I had already written the next Cotton Malone book, which was ready to go. So I had to, that book got pushed to next year, and then I had to write the standalone, but it was okay. It worked out. Uh, I wrote the book during the height of the pandemic. So I was home, had nowhere to go, and I could work on it, you know, pretty much at will every day, all day. So do you think Nick might have the legs to make it into a, another book down the road? I hope so. That's the idea. I hope he'll get to come back and we'll see more of Nick. I, I certainly set it up that way. It's all up to the readers, though. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not arrogant enough to think that, you know, they're going to love him. It's great. We'll be able to do it. Uh, it all depends on the reception. Right now, uh, they, uh, the Cotton Malone readers seem to like him a lot. So there's, it's promising that we might get to see him again. So although he was in the Army and then in the FBI, he is not a fan of using guns to get his job done. No, that makes him different than Cotton. And I, I wanted, you know, you, the trick of writing a book, you know, a book like this is, is your book has to be the same but different from what you normally do. And that's a hard, it's a tall order. So I wanted to deal with Nick. Nick's not big on weapons. It's not his thing. He get, he'll use one. He'll do it if he has to, but he prefers to, to do other ways of doing things. And it just uh, was a way to make him a little different than Cotton. He's traveling to Ghent, Belgium, and he's going to visit someone from his past. He is. Uh, Sister Kelsey Deal, who uh, is a woman that he was involved with long ago, and she um, left, basically cut, you know, ended the relationship and joined a convent because that's what she wanted to do. She was called to be a nun, and they haven't seen each other in 10 years. Finally, they're getting together for the first time, and when it happens... Some a lot happens and a lot of misfortune comes his way and Nick gets drawn in to this mystery and this adventure that deals with the Ghent altarpiece. The Ghent altarpiece is the most stolen, vandalized and uh, destroyed work of art in history. 13 times that painting has been attacked for some reason. No one really knows why. It's, it's interesting. It's a magnificent work of art. It has a lot of mystery associated with it, and it worked very well here uh, in this thriller. And can you tell us a little bit about the, the painters of it, the, the brothers Van Eyck? Yeah, the, the older brother, Herbert uh, Hubert, uh, started it. And many think that he laid the underpaint and the initial drawings of everything. And then his brother Jan came along after Hubert died and finished it. And uh, Jean Van Eck was a miniaturist. He was a very highly skilled painter. There's enormous amount of miniaturization on this painting, a lot of small letters and words and symbols all over it. Luckily, we have high resolution photography so we can see it all. 
It's quite remarkable how he painted these things because magnification in the 15th century was only beginning. It was hard how he, how he could paint things so small with such detail, but he did. And uh, all of that worked really good for the book. And it was also one of the first major works that used oil in paint. What are the uh, characteristics that oil mixed into the paint gave the ability of the artist to, to get done? Prior to that time, you know, they used water-based water paints and you don't get the ability to have the detail that you're looking for. You also don't get the ability to have depth. So oil gives you both of those. You can have depth and you can have a lot of more, uh, uh, a lot of, a lot more, uh, the little fine things that you could, that you could put in there that oil will allow you to put together. Um, that's like you, like you said, this wasn't the first oil painting ever done, but it was the first to maximize what oil painting can do. And we learned how to do it and they got better and better. But this is one a magnificent representation of a, you know, in a very early attempt. It's really, it's really incredible. Now, Kelsey is a member of an order that is dedicated to the preservation of art. So she and Nick have very similar, you know, they don't work for the same people, but they have the same aims in mind. Correct. I mean, uh, Nick's job is to preserve treasures, obviously, and and Kelsey's an art restorer. So that's what she wants to do too. They do it in different ways, though, and different different uh, different techniques and different things. But their interests are similar, and that's what drew them together initially was that love of art. Uh, and that's what draws them together here as well, because they're both on this quest. Kelsey's a little bit, you know, trying to redeem herself because some bad things happened to what she was working on and that she feels responsible. And Nick wants to help her and, of course, also wants to do his, do his job. Uh, it was uh, interesting uh, putting them together. It was interesting having some fun with them. I really enjoyed it. Now, she's been working on a supposedly missing piece of the altarpiece, a reproduction that was made to help fill it out. It was called The Just Judges. When did it go missing? 1934. It was stolen uh, in uh, April of 1934. Uh, no one knows why that particular panel was stolen. Half of it was returned. The back part was returned, but the front part never has been seen again. And this is another violation to the altarpiece that occurred. And that theft is a great mystery. It remains an open crime in Belgium to this day. It's a very sore spot over there for them. And this novel, I put my own take on what happened that night. And so were there photographs of the panel before it went missing? Uh, yeah, there's, there are pictures, but they're not very good quality. They're, they're terrible. Uh, there are copies of it. The altarpiece was copied a couple of times, and one of the copies is in Spain. And so they commissioned a person to paint a copy from the copy, and that's what hangs today on the altarpiece is a copy of the 12th panel. Uh, the original is long gone, so we don't have the ability to study the original. We don't know what was lost between the original and the copy. Uh, all of that is, is a great mystery, and that panel, like I said, has never been seen since. Did they paint an asterisk on it to designate it as an original? No, but uh, the artist who did it uh, put some uh, different faces on some of the people there, so it's clearly a copy. They didn't. They didn't try to 
they didn't try to put it off as an original. Uh, it's clearly a copy, yes. Uh, in my novel, the, the artist who actually did that figures into the mystery and to what happened to it. Now, as Nick is nearing the building where Kelsey is doing her work, he sees smokes pouring from it and things are, are in bad shape when he gets there. Yeah, that's what gets the novel going. I mean, he just gets going and uh, and he just, you know, things go bad from that point on. Everything just goes terrible from that point on. And, uh, it, you know, you got to start a thriller off with a thrill. So you've got to have a good, good, good opening sequence. And that was the one where you see Nick and we see that he can handle himself. We can also see that Kelsey can handle herself, too. Yeah, there's an attacker runs off with her laptop and Nick gives chase. Yeah, and that's what we see. You know, what you want to do in those opening scenes is you want to have action, adventure, and all kinds of cool stuff, but you also want to show the reader that the what these guys are capable of. Now, in chapter two, we meet some new folks, a pair of men, Bernard de Foix and Andre Labelle. Uh, how did you pick the menu for their uh, meal they're having? <laughs> I actually picked it from an available, from an actual menu uh, from the hotel that we stayed out there. I went, I just got their menu and took a look at it. And so they are part of a religious group known as the Cathars, which have not been supposed to have been existent for several hundred years. Yeah, that always fascinated me. The Cathar religion sprang up in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries into the 13th century. It became so popular that the Catholic Church had to do something about it because people were gravitating to it. it. It actually was catching on. It was doing great. So they created the Albacinian Crusade. They sent them into southern France, and they wiped them out. They just annihilated them. They killed tens of thousands of people. It was the first time that Christians killed Christians. They uh, they actually went, you know, Christian killed a Christian, uh, you know, from the standpoint of the Catholic, the Catholic Church itself sending in a crusade to slaughter other Christians. And uh, the religion died. It's gone. Uh, no one knows if it still thrives today or not. It's a great mystery associated with it. It certainly does not openly thrive uh, out there, but I just couldn't resist that it's still around. And it seemed to be kind of uh, Gnostic in its outlook, sh showing that the, the physical world is the imperfect world that is meant to deceive us. Correct. Yeah, they have a very different look outlook on things, but it's a very simplistic outlook, very simplistic. And it appealed to the masses in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. It very much appealed to them. Uh, and the corruption of the Catholic Church at the time actually helped that because the locals could see that the church was corrupt. The local officials were corrupt. The local priests were corrupt. But the but the the, the perfects, they called it, the, the, which were not their priests, but it was like their... They're holy men, the perfects, the perfects. Uh, and this was a name given to them, by the way, by the, the Catholics. Uh, it was a derogatory name, but they adopted it in defiance, saying, OK, we'll, we'll take it if that's what you want to call us. Uh, their perfects were very different. And the religion was, uh, was, as I said, it worked. It caught on. It was a little strange. They did not believe in procreation because they felt like the physical world was evil. And if you brought up someone into the world, you were doing a disservice. So if the religion had actually caught on, they would eventually just wipe themselves out because they didn't believe in having children. So uh, it was a little bit strange uh, how the religion was going to continue itself. But the, the, uh, the, uh, the Catholics put an end to that with the slaughter. And, but I, I, I brought them back. I wanted to see they're still around. I think some people actually think that their uh, 
wanting of celibacy actually influenced the church to adopt celibacy for their own priests? Well, I don't know if you know, but you know, celibacy in the Catholic Church was adopted for a much more practical reason. Uh, the The priest was the was the the most popular man in the in the village. He was the most learned man in most villages. And when people died, they were leaving things to the priest. And at that time, priests were married and they had children. And so that stuff was going to their children. And the church put an end to that. They said, no more marriage, no more that, no more that. Uh, if you give stuff, stuff to the priest, it comes to the church. So it was a very practical reason why celibacy was, in, was invoked by the church. It had little to nothing to do with religion. With, the Bible or anything that it was more practical from a financial standpoint. The perfects were were very much that way because they didn't believe in sex at all. They you know, Cathars, you know, you were not allowed to procreate at all. It was considered evil, so um, that was never a problem for them. Now the Cathars also reject violence and they abhor murder. And but these two men have axes to grind. Oh gosh, yeah, and and. He, as, as illustrated in the novel, he doesn't mind hiring people to do the bad things, but he did not, he, uh, Cathars did not believe in violence at all, did not believe in anything like that. And these guys adhere to that, except to the end. Uh, they're, you know, they're eventually their beliefs get challenged and they have to deal with that. It's interesting throughout the book, there's this kind of tug and pull away and toward violence that these people are religious in many cases and do not want to engage in violence, but at times they, they feel like they're, they have no other options. Right. And, and that, that's what I, I, I was trying to illustrate that, that those beliefs are wonderful until they push you to the max. And when you push to the max, there's no telling what you'll do. And that's what this deals with. What, what, what would you do? This is a region of kind of northeastern Spain, southeastern France, and it's known as L'Occitane. And then there's the smaller region within France called Languedoc. What is this area like and what is the culture like there? Oh, it's beautiful. It's lovely. I've, I've been there several times. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, just lovely um, and uh, very magical. I mean, it has a feel to it down there. You can see why it's so much is you know so much literature and so much stories come out of there it's really amazing the uh the the convent up in the um uh pyrenees mountains up there i've been there a couple of times it looks like something hollywood would have created it's amazing sitting up there and uh it's been there a thousand years it's just amazing. The whole place has a feel to it. I've been, I've done, I did the Templar legacy had, was down there. And now I wanted to return to that area. It's one of my favorite places in the world. And what is the Occitan language like? I, I mean, it's, it's not a language that's in much use today. I mean, it's, it, it exists and it's there. Um, but it's, it's a combination of, of, of that whole region where you picked up Latin and French and Spanish and it all comes together in that particular language. I just wanted to make the readers uh, aware that it existed. Now back to Nick. He's still giving chase to the thief who's taken off with Kelsey's laptop. She meets up with the Belgian police and it looks more like a scene from American television than it looks like what we expect from Europe and their police forces. 
Well, yeah, except when they see something going you know, horribly wrong, if they thought it was a terrorist attack or something of that nature, then they begin to react. And you and the, and it was a Belgian national treasure that was attacked. So, you know, I had that there and, and wanted to deal with it, would deal with that. And and you don't see a lot of guns over there, but you, you will now if they, as I said, they think it's more going on there. And there's a lot happening here, happening very fast. And they get a little trigger happy. Yeah, they do. But that does not end the chase for the laptop. He continues on on the river there in town. He keeps going. And I, it was also a way for me to showcase uh, a lot of the uh, of Ghent, which is a really uh, a really neat place. So I, um, I, I wanted you I wanted the reader to get a feel for that. And he ends up outside of a building and it says it's the convent for the maidens of San Michel. Yeah, my nuns, my fighting nuns. They are. Uh, I had a I had a great time creating them. They were a lot of fun and uh, and putting them together. I was taught by nuns years ago. They're a tough group, and so it was fun to to have them. I really appreciated in the author's note at the end of the book that you gave us a list of things that were historical and things that you had to create to to help the story along. Yeah, that's what, I do that in every novel. Every all of my novels have a writer's note in the back. And I think it's incumbent on me to tell you what's true and what's false. And so I wanted you, I do that in all of them. Uh, I try to keep my novels about 90% to history, as close as I can to reality, but I have to trip it up some, and the writer's note will tell you where I did that. Now, we also meet a couple of representatives from the Catholic Church, and we have Archbishop Gerard Villamur and Father Louis Talar, and they're not the best examples of what Rome has to offer, are they? No, we had to, I, I wanted to get into a little bit of that. I dealt with a little bit of the priest scandal, but not from a standpoint of pedophilia. I dealt with it in another way uh, and, uh, and, and wanted to, you know, I had to, they had to be, you know, these are the antagonists of the novel, so they had to be dirtied up a little bit, yeah. Well, one of them is a, a pedophile and has yeah. been, has been put in a holding pattern, but he has not been punished to any great extent by the, the Holy yeah, and, and he And we deal with him fairly quickly, but the, uh, the archbishop is another story and he, he's going to be much deeper into the story, much deeper into the novel. And, uh, and, and I wanted to, you know, he has a past, he has a past that's come back to haunt him now. He also has a past that also gives other people leverage over him. Uh, very much so, yes, and that's the problem. And the cardinal takes advantage of that. Very much, a lot, takes advantage of it a lot. Having to write all of this from home, it's places you've been before, but what were your challenges, especially not being able to see the lay of the land as you were actually going through the drafting process? Well, it wasn't a problem with this novel because I'd been to all those places repeatedly. So I was, and I'd already done the research for the, for the pandemic hit. So it was not an issue for me. No, not at all. And uh, um, I had all my, I had everything I needed to write the novel, which was very fortuitous that I had everything there. And so it didn't hold me up. And I wrote the book in 10 months. I got it done. That's fast for me. It usually takes me much longer. And so looking back at setting up backstories for Nick and for Kelsey, what was it like going back and getting like new characters with fleshed out backstories and everything like that for you to create new people that were going to be the stars? It was different because I'm used to having my, my heroes already kind of fleshed out. Uh, and uh, so it was, uh, it was different very much so. Uh, and 
you know, starting starting from scratch with new characters and new motivations, uh, I was a little, uh, it was a little challenging, yeah. Uh, I haven't done that since 2012 with the Columbus Affair, but luckily I had Nick in my head for a long, long time. He was there and I had him and I was, and I had a pretty good handle on him of what I wanted to do with him. I just never thought I'd get an opportunity to write him because I do cotton every year and, and McMillan wanted cotton every year. But then when the opportunity came to move to Grand Central, they didn't want to do that. They wanted to do a standalone first. So it just worked out great, you know, that I was able to step right in and do it. Do you remember the, the circumstances that brought him first to your mind? No, not really. I can't remember where he, when I first thought of him. Um, it was a long time ago, um, quite a while ago. And I just kind of filed him away in my head saying, well, you know, maybe one day, maybe one day. Um, and then when this opportunity came available, it was like, okay, the day's here. Now we're ready. Let's do it. The art world is like a big piece of money laundering around the world, uh, especially for drug dealers and possibly for terrorist organizations. Do you think that uh, he and Cotton might step on each other's toes at some point? It's entirely possible. Yes, it is. Depending, it's going to depend a lot, though, on uh, um, the readers. You know, will the, do the readers like him? Do the readers want him? You know, do the readers want to see some more from him? Do, are they interested in him? These are the kinds of things we're we're hoping for. Um, we'll we'll t- we'll uh, time's going to tell. Right now, we're doing okay. You know, uh, there it's very. Uh, uh, you know, the the initial um, response from everybody has been very good. So who knows? Cotton and Nick may end up together. You never know. So since the, the tours aren't as lengthy as they've been in the past, how are you going about gathering that information from your readers on, on what they want to see and, and read in the, the books? You look at the sales numbers and, uh, you know, you, you look at the daily sales numbers and weekly sales numbers and the book so far has done very well. We debuted at number six on the times list. So it's done, it's done good. So we're, we're making progress and we'll see how it plays out. So you said that Cotton Malone book is all ready to go. When can we expect to see that in the stores? February 21st of next year will be that book. It's a, um, uh, a good story too. It deals with Ludwig II. Is that Mad King Ludwig? Yeah, and I don't like to call him that because I don't really think he was mad, to be honest with you. I think today we would have called him maybe bipolar or chronically depressed and treated him with medication and he would have been fine. In his day, of course, that wasn't the case. But he he was an interesting character. He built three fantastic castles, and all of those are going to figure into next year's novel. Uh, And I think you're going to really like it. It's a... uh, it's called The Last Kingdom, and uh, it'll come out February 21. Then in the summer of next year, Luke Daniels, the younger guy from my Cotton Malone series, is going to have his own series starting next summer, and he'll have three books. So uh, the great thriller writer Grant Blackwood is writing those with me, and we're getting the first one ready to go for summer of next year. You are a busy man. It is a little busy right now, but that's okay. I, uh, we're, we, we, uh, the, the pandemic allowed us time, and time allowed us to kind of get ahead of ourselves, which is really nice. Now, I only know the name of one of Ludwig II's castles, and that's Neuschwanstein. And it, okay. is, it is kind of like the archetypal 
fairy tale type of uh, castle. It is. it is. The other one is Harem Kimsey. The other one is Linderhof. There's three of them. Nusfeinstein uh, is the inspiration for Snow White's castle at Disneyland. That's where uh, that's where Walt Disney. That's where it came from. Was, was when he visited there. So uh, it's very much a fairy tale castle. But there's a lot of mystery associated with those three castles. And next year's book's going to deal with all of that. Well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for taking a little bit of time out today and speaking with us on Book Talk. It's always a pleasure to have you on. It's been far too long. Thank you so much. All right. Take care now. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Steve Barry is the author of The Omega Factor, which is his first standalone novel in a decade. His 17th Cotton Malone novel is scheduled for February 2023 from Grand Central. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.